1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 17. And it says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise also, will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Okay. So here we are. Uh, if you've not been with us, we have been coming through the book of First Corinthians. And so uh, we left off last week covering verses 9 through 11. And Paul picks up right here in verse 12. Uh, wouldn't you know it, in context of right where he left off. He's covering the issue of sexual immorality in the church, and he's addressing this from multiple angles, making sure that they understand what they are to be doing as the people of God. Not only what they are to be doing, but how they are to be thinking as the people of God. Both are very important, aren't they? All right, so... Picking up where he left off, he just finished explaining to the Corinthians that they need to properly understand and categorize themselves in this world. And there's only two possible groups of people. Remember we talked about this? There's only two possible groups of people in the world, those who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that's one group, or those who are clothed with their own unrighteousness, that's the other group. There are only two groups. There are no groups in between, okay? And these two groups belong to two kingdoms. And so we talked about two kingdoms last week. Kingdom number one is the kingdom of light. Kingdom number two is the kingdom of darkness. And every single person on this planet belongs to one of the two kingdoms. Okay, again, no middle ground. So if you belong to the kingdom of light, this means that you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. If you belong to the kingdom of darkness, this means that you are clothed with your own unrighteousness and you live in darkness. And so all your deeds and all your thoughts are as a good citizen of the kingdom of darkness. You do well there. We all did well there because we all once belonged to the kingdom of darkness. In the kingdom of light, this is for all those who have had faith in the name of Jesus Christ and his person and his work, and they have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun, to the kingdom of of light to the kingdom of God. And now this is where we live. Okay? Are we good citizens of the kingdom of God? Are we good citizens of the kingdom of light? We know, just go with me. When you didn't belong to the kingdom of light and you belonged to the kingdom of darkness, you were a good citizen of the kingdom of darkness. You did everything that you should do in that kingdom. All your thoughts went right along with everything that should be done. But now that you've been taken from that kingdom and put into a new one, how are you doing in this kingdom? What kind of citizen are you in this kingdom? Are you a good citizen of the kingdom of God? Do all your thoughts and all your actions make it as though you are a good citizen of this kingdom? Or do we have some work to do? Of course we have work to do. That's the whole point. Um, so, we might say this in summary, if you truly belong to Christ, then your life will be reflective of the transformational power of his kingdom. That's true. It will no longer be identified with darkness, but with light. Now, that being said, you're going to sin. You're going to have these remnants of darkness clinging to you, and that's what you wake up feeling every day of your life. You feel the remnants of darkness clinging to you to every part of you. Some parts of you have less darkness than others, right? 
But this is the process of sanctification, that as every day goes on, there is less and less darkness clinging to your soul. And it is not by your own power that you let this darkness flee, but it is by the very power of God, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, informed by the very word of God. Okay? This is what makes the darkness flee. Are you aware of the own darkness in your soul? That's actually primary. Let's start there. If you've come this morning and you don't recognize that you have any ounce of darkness in you, you think you're good to go, um, I don't even know why you came. This is meaningless to you, actually, in that, in that scenario. God has ordained, designed the church for a particular reason, right? And it is a bunch of imperfect people with darkness clinging to their souls, but have been redeemed by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So each one of us has come this morning not as a perfect person. So if you thought that people expect you to be perfect, you have a misunderstanding of what it is to be a believer, to be a Christian. You are not to be perfect. No one expects you to be perfect. We have a perfect one, and it's not you. The perfect one that we have is Jesus Christ himself. So, don't act as though you're perfect because you're not, and I'm not either. No one needs to pretend to be perfect, okay? And what that means is we can be honest and authentic and transparent because no one expects you to be perfect. But there is something that we do expect of you. If you belong to Christ, there is something that we do expect of you, and what is that? That you are growing in holiness. We expect that you're going to sin, but we expect that you're going to repent of that sin and that you're going to give it to the Lord and that you're going to grow in holiness, right? There are expectations. So this is why Paul says in verse 11, because we're in verse 12 now, Paul says in verse 11, such were some of you. Remember he said that? Now he said such were some of you. He does not say such are some of you. He says that's who you were, that's how you were identified, but that is you no longer and it can't be you any longer. You are something new. You belong to a different kingdom now. There is a different power at work in you, so you must be different. That was you, but that is you no more. And they are having a very hard time making this distinction in their minds, right? It's almost like the whole world is a big blurry gray blob. There is no white and black, light and darkness. It's all kind of mixed together the same, and we can't make a distinction between the two. But what Paul's saying is you need to come to this with clarity and say, this is of darkness, this is of light, let's make sure we understand what is good and what is evil. Paul will say in another place that we need to be constantly training our powers of discernment to distinguish between good and evil. Are you doing that? Every day when you wake up, it's a new day to learn better how to distinguish between what is good and what is evil, what is light and what is darkness, not only in the world around you, but in your dark heart. What is good and what is evil in here? And the evil needs to go. How do we figure out what that evil part is? How do we figure out what that darkness is? Thank God he has designed the church and he has given us his word and he has given us his spirit. He has not left us alone. Thank God for what he's done. We said this last week and I hope that it rang true for you that what you believe matters. Is that a true statement or is that a false statement? So what you believe about that statement also matters. Right. We can't deny it. We can't get away from it. What we believe really does matter. So what will we encounter today? Kingdom people need to be thinking kingdom thoughts. Kingdom people need to be having kingdom actions, and the Corinthians were really struggling with both of these. I wonder, do you struggle with both of these? I'm a kingdom person. I belong to the kingdom of God, but I struggle to have kingdom thoughts all the time. I'm a kingdom person. I belong to the kingdom of God, but I struggle to have kingdom behaviors all the time. True or false of you? It's true, isn't it? That's just an honest answer. Paul wanted them to come to a recognition 
of clear categories. And I, and I just want to press that home because this is what Paul's doing. He's creating clear categories. This sin, this good. And we can't remain in this blurry area, right? And we identified one thing in particular last week that we, in our current cultural context, need to be very, very clear about, right? So here's what's going to happen in our text today. Paul's going to quote the Corinthians, and then he's going to object to their quotation. He's going to quote them again. He's going to object again. He's going to quote them again. He's going to object again, and then he's going to detail out for us why he's done all of this. Okay? So let's start here. The Corinthian mindset and Paul's objections, that's what we find in verses 12, 13, and 14. So I'd like to just reread that. All things are lawful for me. Your Bible should have that in quotations. Okay? But not all things are helpful. Notice that is not in quotations. Why is that? Because that's a response to a quote. A quote from who? A quote from the Corinthian church itself. And then he quotes it again. Same quote. All things are lawful for me. And then end quote. But I will not be dominated by anything. And then we have another set of quotations. Do you see that in your Bible as well? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And really, the quotation should, should go all the way to the end of the word other. And God will destroy both one and the other. That's, that's one full quotation there, okay? Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. That's, that's a full quotation. And then he responds again. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So let's look at what he's doing here. So first... We have the first Corinthian quotation. That's in verse 12. What is that quotation? All things are lawful for me. And this has become what's known as the Corinthian maxim. Do you know what that is? You know what a maxim is? I'll give you some examples. You do know, whether you know the word or not, you do know what that is. It's a short, simple phrase that gives a rule to guide a person's behavior. A short, simple rule that's given to guide someone's behavior such as a penny saved is a penny earned. It's better to be safe than sorry. Actions speak louder than words. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. The early bird gets the worm. Don't judge a book by its cover. Got it? That's a maxim. That's, that's just a short, simple phrase that's meant to stick into our memory that helps us guide our behavior. What was the Corinthian maxim? All things are lawful for me. What does that mean? And why did they say this? What does this particular maxim intend to communicate? I would summarize it by saying this. If salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and if all the punishment for my sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for, then nothing I do can condemn me. Therefore, all things are lawful for me. There is no law that says there's anything that I can't do. I can do, I can do anything and everything. There is no law that restricts me. I can think what I want to think. I can do what I want to do. I can behave in any way whatsoever because all things are lawful for me. There is no law that restricts my thoughts or behaviors. What do you think about that as a guiding principle for life? But do you act like it sometimes? I can do what I want. I can say what I want. Not the boss of me, right? It's how I, what I used to tell my sisters. You can't control me. Not in charge of me. And this is ultimately, uh, I mean, really, the ultimate American mindset. Pure individualism. I am my own boss. I will do things my way. I will think my thoughts. And if you don't agree with me, well, then I'll just find somewhere else that does agree. And if I can't find anyone who agrees with me, then I just won't be part of a church at all. Is that dangerous, you think? I think that's very dangerous. Was Paul quoting this and saying, listen, this is what you're saying and this is what you believe? I have a problem with that. 
and Paul gives a couple of objections. But before we get to that, we're not there yet. Let's just talk a little bit about, um, does anyone actually believe this today? I mean, just outright say this and believe this. Are there any groups of Christians that say this very thing? Maybe in their own way, but they're saying this. Um, yes. The answer to that is yes. And just uh, really a term and then a section of theology that exists in this world today. The first word is a word that I've, I've explained to you before, maybe a word that you're familiar with. It's called antinomianism. That's a big word. But what it means is it's, it's the Greek word for law is in there, namas, and it's anti, against, or no, no lawism. Oh, okay, so no law, there are no laws. I am free. There are no laws that bind me. There are no laws that bind my conscience. There are no laws that bind my thoughts. There are no laws that bind my actions. That, there is a term for that because people tend toward this. By the way, is this, a, is, is this something that you could possibly foresee as a temptation for you? Maybe here's the issue. If you don't see this as a temptation, you've got things all wrong because this is exactly what your flesh wants you to believe. This is exactly what your flesh wants you to believe, that there are no guiding principles or laws or rules for your life. And if you hear something like this and you, you, your flesh is gonna say, this sounds very good because now I can do whatever I want. That thing that other people are calling sinful, there's another group of Christians that says it's not. And that's wonderful to me. I can do it now, freely. This is happening. This is happening. And maybe it's happening just one sin at a time, such as what we talked about last week. Oh, no, that one's okay. No laws concerning that, right? Laws concerning other things still, but we'll just take them down one at a time, right? All right. So there are no moral laws for the Christian to obey, but there's another realm of theology here, and that's called free grace theology. Uh, if you've never heard of free grace theology, it goes something like this. Salvation is secured once a person believes in Jesus, and discipleship is not necessary. Now, you might say, well, right. I mean, it's not necessary for your salvation. Unless you believe that if you were to die the second after you profess faith in Christ, truly from the heart, that you don't have salvation unless you had a little time to work it out. Right? That doesn't make sense, does it? Once a person professes faith in Christ from the heart, do they have salvation? Even if they only have 10 seconds left to live? Yes, they have salvation. So discipleship is not a requirement for salvation, is it? No. But is it necessary for the Christian? Or can you just disregard that part? I don't need it for salvation. Why are you telling me I need it? I already have salvation. Why do I need discipleship? Why do I need to grow in holiness is what I'm saying. Why do I need to become more sanctified? Why do I need to think better thoughts? Why do I need to have different actions? Why? If I already have salvation, why? This is a real balance here, isn't it? And it has a lot to do with how we think of things. I, there's a guy who's a free grace uh, proponent. His name is Jesse Martinez. He's a pastor. And he said this. I was just listening to some, some thoughts because I, I, I always just like to have primary sources here. I, I, I don't want to just you know, read someone's commentary on something else. I, I want to hear what they actually have to say and represent them properly. Here's what Jesse Martinez says, talking to his church. I don't come up here with my Bible and my Greek homework and my Hebrew translation and try to make things hard. I come up here with the English Bible and I just tell you what it says. Why is that an interesting quote? from someone who believes in free grace theology. And what he's saying is, his whole point is, if I did that from the original languages, I would be showing that details matter. I would be showing that there are ins and outs that we must discover in the scriptures. And he's saying, listen, it's not like that. It's not complicated. You just get saved. You just get saved. That's it. You just get saved. And this is why, if you're curious, in, in some places, 
the only emphasis is get them saved. Get them saved. Get them saved. Now, do we want people to become saved? Obviously. But is that all the Bible has to say? First Corinthians could have been real short. Get them saved. Love Paul. <laughs> That's not what happened. What did he say? He went into details about very specifics about who they are and how they are to be thinking and behaving. Isn't that true? So here's what we have. We have a, a couple of options here. I have them on the screen. Options A, B, and C. Option A, you can't have them simultaneously. You've got to have one. You can only choose one. A, I must die to myself and put on Christ in order to have salvation. Interesting to think about. Option B, I must simply believe in order to have salvation. Okay. Yes. But you see how options A and B can't go together. Option C, I must simply believe in order to have salvation. But this salvation will be evidenced by a life that dies to self and puts on Christ. Oh, you like that? I saw some head nods. Yes. Option C is our answer, right? I must, I must simply believe. That's true to have salvation. That is absolutely, yes, true. But if you have truly done that, do you know what your life is going to look like? It's going to look like one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ, who dies to themselves and is clothed with Christ. This will be happening. So, obviously, Paul has option C very clearly in his mind. He expects those who are genuine among them, 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, to be submitting themselves to the lordship of Christ, and there is no area of life untouched by this reality. Do you agree? There is no area of life untouched by this reality. You've heard of people saying that they compartmentalize their lives, that like I have my church life, I have my work life, I have my friends, I have my whatever, and you have these compartments of your life. Some areas are touched by the gospel, other areas untouched. Is that the way it should be? Or should you be a citizen of the kingdom of God no matter where you go, what you do, what friends you're with? It should permeate every aspect of your life. If it's not permeating every aspect of your life, there's a problem. And I didn't say perfectly because it's not, that's not an option. Perfection is coming, but it's not coming today. Again, I have to say, I, I assume it's not coming today. I'm hoping that it's not coming today for you, but, but perfection will come for you. But it is not in the here and now. It's in the later and for eternity. Do you remember what Paul said to them back in chapter three? I'm gonna read 1 Corinthians 3, verses one through three. Listen to what he said to them, and you just think about this idea as I read this. But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Doesn't it sound like Paul's a little bit frustrated with their behaviors? And why is he frustrated with their behaviors? Because their behavior should be different, right? It should be holy. Their behavior should be sanctified. And what does he address? The behavior only? Or does he address their theology, their beliefs? So if you get your theology right, it will inform your beliefs or your practices, I should say. Get your theology right, it will inform your practices. If you have no theology of something, then your practices, you're just, I, I don't know. I, don't, I never thought about whether that was okay or not, right? I never thought about if it was okay to have a diet that is only composed of little Debbies. I didn't, never thought about that that had any impact whatsoever on me being a believer. And by the way, it does. Because you are not your own. This is the issue. They thought they were their own. I will belong to the Lord in eternity, but in the here and now, I'm just waiting until I die. I'm mine as it stands. I have salvation, but that's for later. Or is it for today too? Right? Isn't salvation for today as well? 
not just for eternity? That's what Paul's trying to help them understand. So for the redeemed, sanctification is not optional. You don't get to choose whether or not you will conform your life to Christ. You don't get to choose whether or not you submit to the lordship of Christ in your life. If you cannot, or if you will not submit to the lordship of Christ, then guess what that means? Christ is not your Lord. Did you follow that? If you cannot submit to Christ, if you will not submit to Christ, that means he is not your Lord. And if he is not your Lord, what does that mean? Then you do not have salvation. Some pretty big implications here, right? Paul's objections. So they've they've said this, all things are lawful for me, but Paul's objection, his first objection is, but not all things are helpful. That's Paul's words, right? So you have the quotation, all things are helpful for me. And Paul thinks about that and he says, yeah, I mean, I guess, but not all things are helpful. All things may be lawful, but not all things are helpful. Okay, what does that mean? The word means beneficial, helpful. Those go together, don't they? But it actually, the word means to pile things up. It's used in the book of Acts, Acts 19. Do you remember when there were uh, a bunch of people who were practicing sorcery and they brought all their books and they piled them up? It's the exact same word used here, to pile up. But not all things pile up. What does this mean? Not all things collect together to produce a good outcome. Not all things are beneficial for you. Like what kind of things, Paul? Well, like sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thievery, greed, drunkenness, reviling, and swindling. Let's start with those, the ones he just listed. Those things are not good. Can you, this is an interesting thought, can you steal something and still be a believer, still have salvation? Can you get drunk one night and still be a believer? Okay, so what are we saying? Well, picking up on context from last week, remember that these were about ongoing, unrepentant sins that basically identified them under this sin. They are a drunkard, not you got drunk one time and then repented of it. You understand the difference? Your life was marked by something, but it can't be marked by that anymore. There is hope for us, right? Unless you expect to leave here today and and be free from sin. Second Peter 1, I want to read this for you. This is Second Peter 1, 3 through 11. This is a great supplemental passage to Paul's thoughts here, but from Peter. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, do whatever you want. Is that what he says next, do you think? Is that because God has given you all this great good news and credited it to your account, then just do whatever you want with your life. But actually, Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Supplement your faith with virtue, and your virtue with knowledge, and your knowledge with self-control, and your self-control with steadfastness, and your steadfastness with godliness, and your godliness with brotherly affection, and your brotherly affection with love. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how it works together? Yes, it is true that we have been given forgiveness, 
But it doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want because there is a sense in which we can be unfruitful being a believer. Right? You know this. Or do you think just all Christian life is exactly the same? You're a believer, I'm a believer, our life is exactly the same. Or is there fruit to be produced? So Paul says, it may not be beneficial to do all these things. In fact, I know it's not. God has called you to holiness. He is holy. We are to be holy. It's not just a good idea. It's a command. I think probably the primary thing that I come in contact with as I'm talking to people who go to, you know, wherever, different churches, I come in contact with people. I'm talking maybe about church, Christian life, things like that. Um, It seems as though what they understand is what we know of the Bible and God and Jesus, whatever that is, all those things. It's like they're good ideas. It's like it's probably the best thing to do, but I mean, I don't have to. It's like these are optional things to get extra credit. You know what I'm saying? This like, there are things that the Christian should do to gain extra credit, but you already have passed, you already have an A. This is just for extra credit. That's not how this is. We have a master and Lord. And our master and Lord has said, you will die to yourself and you will be clothed with me, my righteousness, and this will change you forever. And you need to be doing this every day of your life. Have a renewed mind. Be thinking differently. Be behaving differently every single day. Not for extra credit. This is not extra credit work. This is a command of our Lord. So Paul says, I understand what you mean, that you have salvation no matter what. And he's saying in part, that's somewhat true, but ultimately, um, those things aren't beneficial. Beneficial for what? For godliness, which we've been called to, right? Number two, he gives a second, (coughs) excuse me, he gives a second objection, and he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. This is the second objection that he has to this lawless idea. Nothing will hold me in its power. Nothing will maintain its authoritative power over me and my life. Remember what Paul said in Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do you know that for those who are in Christ, you don't have to obey sin. You know that. But here's the thing is that it seems like I must sometimes. It seems like I have to. Sometimes that little dark spot seems to grow. And before I know it, I'm walking around in the dark. I didn't even know the lights went off. What happened? Because we give in. But we've been given the Spirit of God. We have power at work in us. This is another part of being an informed Christian, to have a, having an informed mind. I almost said reformed mind. That's true too. But having an informed mind about these things. Because when things present themselves to you in your life, how do you know whether or not to participate in that thing? How do you know whether or not to engage in that activity or to think that thought? So do you see why your mind is very important? Mindlessness is popular. Okay? Did you know that? Mindlessness is very popular. And just having pure, mindless emotions is very popular. That is not what you are called to as a believer. We have to be changed in our thinking. We have to be, and this is what Paul's talking about. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So this theology, ultimately, it's a license to give in to sinful passions and pleasures. If there's no law guiding you, you can do whatever you want. Okay, so let's get to the second quotation. That's in verse 13. The second quotation from the Corinthians says, Food is meant for the stomach, 
and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And you might think, what, what are they trying to say by, by saying this? This is the mentality, this is the mindset of those people living in Corinth who were of the church, calling themselves believers, but they were thinking this thought. What's your stomach meant for? It's meant for food. So what am I going to do? I'm going to eat. Okay? And uh, by the way, God will destroy both one and the other. What does this mean? They're only temporary realities. So what does it matter what I eat? God's going to destroy my stomach one day anyway, right? It'll all be gone. It's only temporary. It's only for the here and now. What does it matter? What does it matter whether or not I have a healthy lifestyle? What does it matter what you do to your body? Does it matter what you do to your body? It does matter what you do to your body. What they're saying is the only reason food exists is because the stomach exists. Both of these are part of the sinful fallen world and uh, they'll be gone one day. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. So while we're waiting for the promise God has made to us, we'll eat whatever we want. We'll drink whatever we want. We'll behave in any way we want. We'll put anything into our bodies that we want because it's no big deal. It doesn't matter. This is a part of my life. My physical body is a part of my life that doesn't need the Lordship of Christ. I've got this part. I've got the physical part. God can have, you know, the immaterial part. God can have the mind. God can have my emotions. God can have everything else. But the body, he doesn't care about. Or is that true? It doesn't seem right, does it? Because it's not right. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. You're, you're very wrong in the way that you just interpreted this whole reality of life and how it's supposed to be lived. Christians, some believe that life is only about getting a salvation ticket and then we're just waiting until we die. It, this can go one of two ways. One, once you have your salvation ticket, you find license to do whatever you want because you have your salvation ticket so you can do whatever you want. Or two, others take a different path they will turn legalistic in a very different way. They'll say, we need to get as many people as possible to get their salvation ticket because that's the only uh, point of being alive. People must get their salvation ticket. Nothing else matters. Only salvation tickets matter. And that's also a very weird way to think because it's not what the scriptures have to say. Is that what it's all about? Just getting in? Or is there actually something that must be done for all those who are in? That we are to be living representatives of the gospel? Yes. So this is how the maxim works itself out. We're just here till we die. So we might as well, I don't know, make the most of it. And for some people it looks like this. And for some people it looks like this. And Paul's saying everything about this is wrong. So what's his objection? He says in the second half of verse 13, verse 14, he says, basically, what you must understand is this. The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He says in the text, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. You think that your body is simply temporary, but you forget one big thing here. He's going to raise you up by his power. So he says, by that mark, by the way, you've just got it wrong unless you don't re, uh, believe that there's a resurrection of the dead. Well, we do believe there's a resurrection of the dead. So you say, food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food, God will destroy both one and the other. Your bodies are temporary, doesn't matter what we do, and Paul turns this in on sexuality, and he says, God created the stomach for food, and he created the body for sex. That's the parallel he just made. If you say that the stomach is simply meant for food, it doesn't matter what you put in there, then what, what I'm saying is, is, can you take that to its logical end? So the body then is just created for what? For sex, and it doesn't matter with who. And that's his whole point. What you do with your body matters. What you do with your body really does matter. Just as it doesn't matter what I eat, doesn't matter who I have sex with, 
That's his whole point. But this isn't what you were created for. It's not what your body was meant to do. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but what is it made for? What is your body made for? Your body is for? For the Lord. Your heart is for the Lord. Your mind is for the Lord. Your emotions are for the Lord. Your body itself is for the Lord. Has to do with what you eat. Yep, that's true. Also has to deal with your sexuality. And this was a big issue for them. All sexu sexual activity is not the same, right? All sexual desire is not the same. The body was not created for the express purpose of sex. The body was created for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So sexual desire and activity is not the key to a person's identity or the purpose of their life. If you didn't hear what I just said, maybe you don't understand like, uh, the, the, what, what's in the thought of the cultural air. Because this is what is believed by the majority. That your sexual desire and activity is key to your identity and purpose in life. But I just said, no, it's not. And I didn't make it up. That's literally what was just said in the text. The point of your life is not about your sexual identity and what you do sexually in this life. What a life, if that's all that it's about. Instead, Jesus Christ himself is the key to our identity. That's a big difference between us and the world right now. Do you know that? We don't identify the same. We don't even use the same terminology. We're in different worlds here. What's your identity? Well, it has something to do with my sexual, something sexual. That's who I am. But for us, who are you? I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. That is my identity. I belong to the kingdom of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. That is who I am. And I happen to be created male by God, by his sovereign action. And so I will behave appropriately for how my creator has created me to give him glory because I don't get to choose about that. So what you do with your body matters. And then he just, uh, he'll, he'll go on about this in 1 Corinthians 15, but he's, this is just, he's just touching it. I, that's, that's how it is. I mean, when you look at the text and he's talking about uh, uh, sexual immorality, he says, Verse 14, and, and uh, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And he says nothing else about that. He's like, you think the, that this physical life is just temporary, but you've forgotten that there's a resurrection coming. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus had a foretaste of that where he was resurrected physically, bodily. What does that look like for us? There's more of that coming but he's just touching it right now and saying, it's not the way you think it is. Let's look at the next idea here. This begins in verse 15. <coughs> excuse me, verse 15. He begins this by saying, do you not know? And of course, what does that mean? Paul has said this a lot, right, throughout this letter so far, especially recently. Do you not know means, I know you know, I already told you but I'm going to tell you again. Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Answer to that? No, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Okay, so, number one here. Your bodies are members of Christ. What does this mean? Well, it's, it's probably really important to understand that the word members here means body parts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. What does that mean? That means your body, your physical body is made up of parts. 
You have body parts. It's the same word as members, okay? So when he says, do you not know that your bodies are body parts of Christ? What? That is a really weird imagery. I mean, it kind of is a weird imagery, but it's true because we have been united with him. He is our head, we are his body, and we are collectively his body, but individually parts of his body. You are his body parts. So that, that's what flows next. Shall I take a body part of Christ and make it a body part and join it together with a prostitute? Should I take God in the flesh, God himself, and join him with a prostitute? And he says, what do you think about that? Obviously never, but he anticipates that that's what they're gonna say, right? Because he says never. He knows that they're gonna say no, that's not how it works. In your physical body, it's not always immediately apparent to the senses that you have been united with Christ and that you are part of his body. Nothing actually physically changes when we come united with Christ. But wouldn't that be, I mean, kind of in a sense, I mean, that would be kind of be nice, right? I mean, wouldn't it? Just to, oh, good, I know, I've got the mark on me, you know? I just, or I've been changed. Uh, but that's actually, it, it physically is not immediately apparent to the senses that you have become united with Christ. But you are united with Christ by faith. And so you have become his body. We actually compose the body of Christ, him being the head, us being his body, and something actually happens just like in the marriage covenant. Do you know that God actually does something special? We had a, a, a wedding yesterday. Okay, Noah and Lexi, do you know that when this marriage ceremony takes place, that there is actually a union that God forms in that very moment that previously did not exist? It's not just a piece of paper so the government can look at you differently. Okay, That's incorrect. There is actually literally something that happens when people are married. They're united together. They're joined together. And then this becomes more apparent when the physical activity comes into play and it literally becomes obvious. It is apparent to our eyes that this just happened, but not so with our union with Christ. Right? You follow what I'm saying? It does, but we can't see that with Christ. But we are united with him. We are joined with him. So this is a connection Paul is arguing between the physical body of the flesh and one's spiritual incorporation into the body of Christ. If you have spiritual union with Christ, this has physical implications for your body in the here and now. They thought this is physical and earthly and it's going to be destroyed anyway. What does it matter? So Paul gives them a very specific scenario that they might understand and that's what happens next. Would you join Christ to a prostitute? Why in the world would he bring out such imagery? I think for a very particular reason, actually, he brings out this imagery. All right, time for a little break. Are you ready? All right, I have an image for you on the screen. This is the ruins of ancient Corinth, okay? Basically as it stands today. It's beautiful, isn't it? I'd like to visit one day. Uh, what you'll notice is there's uh, a structure here, here standing and then there's a, a large, uh, <coughs> we'll call it a hill, okay, in the background. Do you see it? It's very important. Go to that next image. This is the same city, same ruins, but from a different angle. What you have here is the Temple of Apollo, and you can see how it would stretch this way. And then up there was the Acrocorinth, which was a fortified part of the city, and it's also where the temple of Aphrodite was located. You've heard of Aphrodite? Sound like a good thing, bad thing. Relevant in this scenario. Uh, so the temple of Aphrodite, leave that up there just for, for a couple of minutes. The temple of Aphrodite was located very, very near the city center. And it was said this. Um, it is not given, this is an ancient geographer writing about in the time that uh, 1 Corinthians was being written. Here's what he said about Corinth. It is not given to every man to cross to Corinth. Or in another way, 
a visit to Corinth is not for just any man. Why? What this means is, when you go to Corinth, it's known that what you're going there for is for the temple prostitutes that belong to the temple of Aphrodite. They had over a thousand prostitutes at any given time, and the exchange of money would go to fund the temple. And so all these women, some young boys actually, would all come down into the city center, and the men that came there, remember it was a port city, very uh, luxurious city, had lots of money, lots of people coming and going, and all these women were right there all in the mix of it. And so it's something that these men in particular would have been very well aware of and most likely something that they took part in. And so he's drawing to their attention something that used to be part of their life. And maybe for some of them still is, otherwise why would he mention it? So are you gonna take your body and join it to a prostitute? You wouldn't have any problem with that unless you didn't realize that your body is joined with Christ. So when you do something with your body, it's Christ doing it because Christ infiltrates every part of your being. Every part of your being. Your body matters. And what you do with your body really does matter. We can't just behave in any way that we want. Do you not know that when you had faith in Christ, you were joined with him and that spiritual union has physical implications on your life? So temple prostitution was a serious issue in Corinth, obviously. Unfortunately, this is what the city was known for, and it's kind of like people have equated it with modern-day Las Vegas, but actually much worse. People go there, you know what they're going there to do and what's legal, right? And so why not go where the action is? So it was very expensive, though. So a trip to Corinth is not for just any man, but a man who has deep pockets because we know what you're going to do there. This is what the city was known for, and where was the church located? In the city. This would be a difficult place to have a church. Do you want to all pick up? you want to all move to Vegas? Do you think it would be the same as having a church in Sparta, Tennessee? While they have their issues, do we not also have ours? But they're just, they look a little different, don't they? So what Paul was bringing up about prostitution was actually extremely relevant to them. But it's also relevant for us. There is a culture of hookups. If you know what that means, then you're mature enough to understand this conversation. In this context, is it appropriate or inappropriate for someone who is in Christ? The hookup. Okay or not okay? Or is there something that actually happens in that physical union? And God says, I've designed that physical union for a purpose. You need to understand my design and live according to my design, which is for one man and a woman in the marriage relationship. That's how God designed it, right? Believers are joined to Christ. So what you do with your body matters. So last week we emphasized what? What you believe matters. What you do matters. What you do with your body matters. As we're bringing this to a close today, uh, Genesis 2 is quoted, and uh, a lot could be said about that. I will save that for the addendum, okay? So you have to wait for tomorrow for that. Let's all, let's all look together at Ephesians 5 because Paul also quotes this in Ephesians 5 and I really just want to draw this out before we close today, okay? As you're turning there, just remember what's being said or just our last few words. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What does that mean? Well, it has something to do with my body, I guess. I, what does that mean exactly? He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
Ephesians 5 is very helpful, so let's just turn there. Ephesians 5, 25. And as I said, we're going we're gonna to end here in this text today, okay? Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. I love this text. It is actually... See if you can still make it out. It's engraved on the inside of my wedding ring. Ephesians 5. And you can still see it, actually. It's an incredible text. Seems to be about marriage. And it is about marriage, but it's also about something far more than marriage. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. Because we are his body parts. That sounds strange to say it that way, but that's actually literally what it says. We are his body parts. We are collectively his body. We are his bride. We are his wife. He cares for us. And then he quotes Genesis uh, Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying, you know that beautiful union that takes place with a man and a woman? They come together in bonds of marriage, but then they also have a physical union. We understand this. It's beautiful. God has designed it this way, and it's a wonderful thing. Should it be taken on the way God designed But he says, you know, all this talk about marriage and union and becoming one flesh, don't you know that this is a mystery? How is this a mystery? Because it's not even about men and women. It's about Christ and the church. The reason marriage exists is because God intended to show us the gospel through the union of a man and a woman. I said yesterday, first time I really had this thought, I guess. That's pretty basic, though. God did not design humanity in such a way that whenever there was a new life to be given, he just took some dust and breathed life into it. He could have done that. You know, he could have done that. He is God, after all. He could have just formed every individual out of the dust, just like he did Adam. But that's not what he chose to do. He chose for a man and a woman to come together in union to become one flesh and to create life. That's what happened. So it's a pretty amazing picture. But he says, don't you realize that all of this is a mystery and it refers to Christ and the church. This union between you and Christ is real. And it has real implications for your life in every way. Lots to deal with in this text today. And if it feels like I'm talking slowly at some points, it's because if I, if I wanted to, I, I probably could have made this like a three-hour thing. But I've chosen not to do that. Um, there's a lot to deal with here in this text. Uh, but I hope that you're leaving with the understanding of this, if nothing else. You have been united with Christ, joined with him by faith. And so you are now a part of his very body. And this has physical implications. That's what we're talking about today. It doesn't have mental, spiritual, it has lots of implications. But in this text, it has physical implications. For who you are, what you do with your body. Your body is not your own. Your thoughts are not your own. Your emotions are not your own. You've been purchased with a price. So glorify God with your body. And that's exactly what he'll tell us next week, but we'll wait for that, okay? All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how powerful it is and for how it just changes our perspective on who we are and what we're to be in this world. And so I pray, lead us, guide us, 
in all of these things, convict our hearts, show us, show us where there's any darkness left in us. You have promised that you are sanctifying us, that you will present the church to yourself without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, and you have made sure of that. But as it stands, we're in the middle between what you have started and what you have yet to finish. But we trust that you are doing that work, and so we submit our lives to you completely, fully. So show us where our lives are not yet fully yielding to your lordship in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.